1: Welcome to a new year of Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. In this, our first episode of 2014, we're focusing on fitness. Each year at this time, Americans rush to enroll in gyms and other fitness clubs to start burning off those holiday season calories and working toward their New Year's resolutions to get in shape. That's a great trend. Unfortunately, various studies suggest that more than half of those who join a gym or fitness club will drop out within three to six months due to apathy or injury. Our guest today, physical therapist Robert Galanders, routinely treats individuals who alter their exercise routine with the best intentions, only to get sidelined by injury. In this interview, he provides valuable advice on how to improve fitness safely and successfully. So if your goal is to continue into spring, summer, and fall, the fitness focus you have today, this episode is for you. Here's our conversation with Robert Galanders. So it's New Year's resolution season, and for many of us, resolutions tend to be tied to fitness. Some of us wanna lose weight. Some of us wanna build muscle. Some of us wanna reach some sort of athletic goal, maybe finish a race. Some of us just wanna basically feel healthier And it's great that we're doing that. It's great that there are so many ways that people can become more fit. They can get back on the bike. They can join a gym. They can sign up for a race, whatever it is. And yet at the same time, one of the greatest enemies for getting fit is getting injured. And so, Robert, my first question for you is how often in the clinic do you see people who come in with injuries that have resulted from making pretty significant changes to their exercise routine?
2: Great question. And that's what I see all the time. And so better question is when do I not see that being the case? But I think our point of emphasis is that it doesn't have to be dramatic changes to an exercise routine. It can be pretty subtle changes. So I think one of the things that I really emphasize in the clinic as a physical therapist is is talking to the person and understanding what it is about their recent history, meaning over the last – few months what has been different because making a change doesn't always have to make a negative impact immediately it could be something that creeps up six weeks into it a classic example is and this is actually not even directly related to exercise as much as it's equipment is a couple years ago barefoot running was a huge deal people were running in these new shoes that were less supportive and they would do okay for a couple weeks or a month and then all of a sudden they're coming in with So I think that when people start to do something different, whatever that may be, whether it's more frequent exercise, more intense exercise, a different mode of exercise, usually that's when we see the body reacting to that, and if they're going to be injured, it's usually in some transitional phase like that. So I'd say that's a very important question and one that I ask all the time in the clinic because I need to figure out what's different. Usually when I ask the question, what's different, if it's a subtle change, the person says to me, Nothing's different, so (laughs) I have to ask it a different way to come up with the appropriate answer. The people that are making New Year's resolutions or starting off in a new routine, usually it's pretty clear what the change is and trying to figure out how do we accommodate for that change and get things to calm back down if they're dealing with a, a current injury.
1: So if even subtle changes to the routine can be enough to cause injury, what's the basic element of improving fitness? of wanting to exercise more, of wanting to fulfill that New Year's resolution, for example, while still managing to avoid injury.
2: Another great question. I think that's where the sort of fine art of progressing activity comes in. And as cliche as it is, I think if you were going to anchor the routine on one thing, I would say take it slow. I mean, usually what I see in the clinic is somebody has gone for too much, too quickly, and the body responds to that uh, sudden change. So I think if you take it slow and you kind of have this guiding principle of it's better to undershoot than it is to overshoot, I think people are going to do pretty well. I think if you listen to the body and you give the body time to respond, I think that's a good guiding principle too. And what I mean by that is if you dramatically overdo something, you're going to know about it within, perhaps within the same day, you know, within 24 hours or 36 hours at the very least. But sometimes you don't know that you're overdoing it until you're sort of weak into it and you've overshot and now you're in a place where tissues are reactive tendons are becoming irritated, but at that point, you're already sort of to the point of really needing to dramatically decrease your activity to allow things to heal. So what I mean by undershoot is I think if our goal is to develop a program of exercise that we can get a long-term benefit from, that if we do a little bit, but we do it regularly and we do it frequently, that person's going to be better served than the person that tries to bite off a bigger chunk, does a bigger amount in the beginning but then has to shut it down a few weeks into it because they've done too much. So I would say one of the fundamental elements of improving fitness is just taking it slow. If you want to avoid injury, I think if you have a systematic plan, and that's another good point is have a plan. I think that oftentimes people go into it with lofty goals and with the huge desire but allow themselves to kind of get ahead of themselves to the point where they're just doing too much. They don't have a plan on paper that they're following to sort of gently ease into it and that's one thing that I see in the clinic is when I'm talking to somebody about an overuse injury I want to know what did they do before and what are they doing now and how much relative change has there been so if you're taking somebody who's done little to nothing before it's like they really need to take it slow an example might be that they're going from doing nothing to just walking for 20 minutes you know which might not seem like a lot but Unfortunately, I think our society has developed into relatively sedentary lifestyles. So walking is a a great mode of exercise. It's very accessible. But even a small change like adding 20 minutes to a day can be something that, you know, the body needs to get used to. So I think those are some key elements, listening to the body, starting slow, taking the approach of, I'm going to underdo it, and I'm going to underdo it for a matter of weeks to allow myself to demonstrate a tolerance to something before I start to change it. And I think a demonstrated tolerance is over the span of weeks versus the span of days. I think that how people get ahead of themselves is by taking a tolerance to one bout of exercise or two bouts of exercise and thinking that demonstrates a tolerance, and That To me, I want to see trends, so I would rather have somebody say, okay, I've done this mode of exercise for two weeks and I've been okay, now I'm going to increase it. If I can get somebody to buy into that, I think generally we do pretty well, and I think we're going so slow that if there's a problem, we'll know about it in the moment, and we can make these subtle adjustments along the way so that things respond appropriately.
1: Yeah, there does seem to definitely be that attitude, too, between, as you mentioned, there's a sedentary lifestyle, and then there seems to be an attitude of all back-end exercise. And oftentimes there, I think, isn't that bridge, isn't that gap? There's a tendency, I think, to try to get all of your New Year's resolutions accomplished, for example, by the end of January, instead of knowing that you spent the previous year falling out of shape, it's going to take you to get back into shape. So that stage approach really works well. On that note, though, of sort of listening to your body, how does someone differentiate between, okay, these are kind of healthy adjustments. These are kind of healthy aches and pains, natural things. I'm pushing my body versus this is the start of an injury. This is something that's more significant. What are good signs to differentiate between the two?
2: I quiz people on a variety of different things on that. And One thing on the most basic level is if we're changing, we're starting a new exercise routine, I expect there to be some appropriate discomfort because of that our goal is to make muscles stronger, then we need to work to the point where, you know, there's tissue breakdown so that the body's remodeling itself into being stronger. So yes, soreness to some degree is normal. So one thing I'll tell people is if you think of a 10-point scale, having some pain is okay. And I usually give them parameters. I say, okay, if we're in this zero to 10 scale where 10 is the most pain you can imagine and zero is nothing, if somebody's in the scale from zero to two or three, I tell them, hey, you know, that's a manageable level. We can work through that and we can continue on with our path. I tell them if it's, four to six, that I'm going to be asking them to change their routine to accommodate to that. So, for example, let's say somebody started out with a, a walking routine and they're noticing that's five out of ten, you know, I might ask them to go to riding the bike, something that's a little bit less impact, or walking in the pool. It's an environment where they can do that exercise, but they've accommodated to it to some degree to make it easier to drop back down into that zero to three range. And then I tell them seven and above we're not exercising at all. We're gonna just stop and take a break and let things calm down before we regroup because at that level, that's sort of out of touch with the slow start that we've suggested in the first place. So one thing is the level of pain that they're having. Another thing is the quality of pain. So what I mean by that is I'll ask somebody, can you describe the pain? So a little bit of achiness, tightness is okay, but if somebody comes in and they're describing sharp, stabbing pain, that quality says to me something's not right. So if somebody, in listening to their body, pays attention to the quality of the pain and the level of pain, I think that's a really good place to start. I also want to know what's the duration of the pain or discomfort they're having. If it's something that they're a little bit sore the day after exercising, and it dissipates as the day goes on. That's a reasonable expectation. If it's something where they do the exercise and they notice pain immediately afterwards, they notice pain disrupting their sleep or otherwise disrupting their day-to-day stuff, those are signs to me that something is is not right and it's out of proportion with what we want, I'm definitely gonna be having them scale things back considerably as a result. So if I look at the amount, the quality, the duration, I also look at what's the location of the pain. Is this a diffuse soreness? which would be normal in the context of somebody starting a new routine, and, or is it localized to one joint or one area? Again, another sign that maybe there's a potential area for breakdown, maybe a, a red flag for an area that could become more of an injury versus a reaction, and I'm going to be looking at that a little bit more closely. In that same perspective, I want to know, is this soreness one side or the other side or both? in which case I would say, hey, if somebody's starting a new routine, why would I expect the left side to react differently than the right? So I expect them to come back and say, yeah, I was a little bit sore, it got better. Actually, when I was active, it seemed to calm it down versus the person that says, yeah, I I did what you said, but now I'm having stabbing pain in my right foot. So that's not a normal response. So I think if you kind of listen from that vantage point where you're thinking level pain, quality of pain? Where was it? How long did it last? I mean, those are the kinds of things that I think actually can help you to decide, hey, is this normal or is this abnormal as far as feeling discomfort?
1: You mentioned being active and through that sort of having pain dissipate. In some ways, that seems counterintuitive. So somebody gets back to working out, they feel soreness. It seems like almost the instinct would be, okay, I'm going to back off and I'm just going to lay on the couch all day and let my body recover. But is keeping moving a better plan?
2: I think so. Again, it's a judgment call. I mean, I ask people about their discomfort and pain so often. They're rolling their eyes when they come in. I say, tell me what number it was, you know, on a scale of 10. But, again, there are times that I want somebody to take complete rest, you know, as I described, being in that upper range, 7 and above out of 10. But if somebody is having just normal, what we would call delayed onset muscle soreness, so this is diffuse muscle soreness and some of the big muscle groups, a day after doing exercise, there's a lot of research that suggests that low-intensity exercise is really a great way to diminish that soreness. So take the example of somebody that's coming back a running routine. So they've started to do short little bouts of jogging and walking as an introduction to getting back into running. When they come back and they're diffusely sore, what I generally advocate for these people is instead of taking complete rest I want them to do some low-intensity exercise to try to do a variety of different things. One, get the blood flowing. Two, take these sore muscles that have become a little bit reactive and stiff and help them to gently stretch out by taking them through a range of motion. So in the example of a person that's doing some jogging and walking to become more active, I might say, well, hey, on this off day, let's give these muscles a break by not running, but let's give them some benefit from doing low intensity exercise I might advocate for stationary bike I might advocate for getting in the pool and just going through the motions of either swimming walking something like that because I really do think that the people that take that approach or even just walking outside for the person who's starting to run those people generally do better and it also gets them into the mindset of they're going to be active days and then they're going to be recovery days recovery days don't mean absolute rest they just mean we're doing something that's different than our actual primary mode of exercise, and we're doing it for the specific reason of recovery. So allowing the tissues to get benefit from movement, because as physical therapists, we love movement, and that's our area of specialty, but for the individual that's coming to see us, it's about teaching them that, hey, on an off day, that doesn't mean complete rest. It just means we're going to have our focus on something else. And movement, really, I mean, you could boil it down to just moving, you know, getting these muscles turning on and off, getting range of motion in all the joints, and allowing it to be active rest. I mean, I, that's really how I look at it is I'm going to have a rest day, but I'm going to still be active. And that's where I really leave it up to the person. I'll say, okay, if we have our Monday, Wednesday, Friday that we're going to do our cardiovascular training, then how do you want to be active on these other days? Is there an activity like some people like to walk, some people like the pool, some people hate the pool? So I try to let those days be sort of dealer's choice so that they can be committed to doing this. I think that's one of the, the basic elements that, that we haven't touched on that I think is so important with a new exercise routine is it has to be fun for the person. It has to be something they want to do. And just because it's good for them, that really doesn't doesn't connect to them on a meaningful level. But if it's something they want to do and we can figure out a way to sort of empower them to actually do that and be consistent with it, that's where the, the people are most successful because they're consistent. They're not saying, okay, I'm going to do all of this in January. If it's something they like to do and they want to do, then we can map out a six month program where we're gently building up to something that might be that race that they want to do. It might be that vacation where they're being active and hiking on a vacation, which is not something they've done in the past. It gives them a tangible goal to work toward. You know, we make it realistic.
1: So let's actually use that last example you just provided as somebody going hiking. You know, somebody knows they've got a trip coming up. They know they need to be in a little bit better shape. Or maybe they don't know, and that kind of leads to this question. What if somebody thinks, I'm kind of active. I think I'm in an okay shape, or I think I'm in okay shape to train for that race that is a couple miles longer than I usually run, but I'm probably fine. What are good ways just in general for someone to gauge their own level of fitness and know if they have any deficiencies or any problems that need to be addressed?
2: Well, that's an interesting question, and I think that because our listeners are going to have so many different types of goals and things that they want to achieve. But I think if you just boil it down to some basic elements, I think you can help to guide people into understanding whether they're ready or not. So let's take the person who's hiking. And actually, I just had somebody in the clinic this week who said to me, hey, you know, they're, they're just getting over surgery. So they had a knee reconstruction and they said, my goal is that in January, I want to be able to hike x number of miles with my family while we're on vacation and i said okay well it didn't seem like an unrealistic goal the only problem was it was the scenario where the person was going from zero to 60 so and what i mean by that is i said to this person i said well how much have you been hiking now and he said zero so going from zero to say Do I think this person could go walk six miles and be okay? Yes. But what I suggested to them and what we can suggest to our listeners is if there's something you want to do, the best way to know whether you can tolerate it or not simply is just by starting to do that particular activity or if it's a certain distance, it's like, let's start working towards that distance and see how it goes. For this person, it was hiking eight miles in a day. And I said, well, let's start out by going two or three and let's see how it goes. And by the time we get to your vacation time in January, which was a month away, you know, I suggested that by the time we get there, we'll know along the way whether you're going to do okay or not. How does somebody decide whether they're tolerating something? I think, again, back to listening to the body, listening for pain, watching for things uh, that can be warning signs for injury, like swelling around the joints. Those are the kinds of things that the person says to me, I want to run a five-mile race in February. How do I know if I'm ready? I would say, well, if we can build up to two-thirds, three-quarters of the distance and we're doing fine as far as no spikes in pain, I would say, yeah, we can be confident that we're going to be ready for that. I don't think we always have to necessarily do exactly what the person wants to to achieve prior to the goal. So does somebody need to be able to walk five miles before they go on vacation where they want to do that? No, but if they're in the four range or the three and a half range and they're doing okay, we've demonstrated a tolerance to that particular activity enough so that we can be confident that things are not going to explode on us when they go for that hike or that walk or or whatever it is. And I think that gets back to our basic elements that we talked about earlier, which is if you map out a plan where you're consistently doing a particular activity and you're working towards this goal, I think we're going to have a systematic approach such that if there's a problem, we're going to know about it before we get to the problem, and then we can adjust it accordingly. So, you know, let's take the scenario where the person is walking, they're increasing their distance, and they start to notice some discomfort. You might have to realistically scale things back, but at least we do that and we avoid an injury versus the cowboy approach, which is, okay, I haven't been doing anything, but I really want to do this, so I'm going to go ahead and increase my activity fivefold. That's where we see the body just can't adjust to that in the immediate term, and that's where things get dinged up. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that there's some catastrophic injury, but if our goal is to be consistent and dedicated to an exercise routine that we can do throughout the whole year well if we do a bunch in january and then things blow up then we're off february march the turtle wins the race the bottom line i strongly encourage people hey take it slow we'll gently ramp up if we demonstrate a tolerance to it great let's do that goal race let's do that goal hike whatever it may be but if we don't then we need to be willing to adjust along the way and i think most people are on board with that
1: so let's shift gears just a little bit there and maybe mid-year let's imagine the person who has built slowly they have been good about doing that but let's say they're a runner just to pick an activity they're doing all this running and now they get to be mid-year and they're starting to feel some aches and pains and maybe that's from too much of the same thing and and i'm wondering there you you alluded in the past to recovery days we hear about cross training all the time how significant is that to vary your routine to avoid overuse injuries or, or things of that nature
2: I think that's really important, and I think that if you look at, if we're going to use running as an example, I mean, you don't have to look too far within the running circles and some of the more well-known and respected coaches that that strongly advocate for that because I think they recognize that running is a lot of repetitive motion, and it's just like somebody sitting in front of a computer and typing all day. It's like, do we want to have that person stand up and try to engage in a different activity so they're not doing that all day long? Absolutely. And the same thing goes for the runner. Cross-training is a way to train the body and get cardiovascular fitness and allow the joints and muscles to have a relative break. And, you know, the body is just an incredible adapter to stress, both good and bad stress. So look at cross-training as good stress. It's a different way to stress the body to get the benefit that we're trying to achieve with running, which is cardiovascular fitness, strength, flexibility. You know, in, in some ways, I think runners are a group of people that have this misconception that if I'm going to be a strong runner, that that means I'm Only going to benefit from running, but I think that if I can twist somebody's ear and present to them the benefits of doing other things, whether that's from giving the muscles a break and giving the bones a break or teaching them that doing other exercise might actually make them a stronger runner. If they're willing to try it, I think they learn in the long term that that less is more, that doing a little bit less of the primary activity allows for recovery, allows for the muscles to be stressed in a different way. And at the end of the day, their tolerance to training actually increases by doing a little bit less of their primary activity and inserting the cross training as a result. So, and this again, back to the point I was making earlier of like active recovery, it used to be that People would do a hard workout, and then they would do an easy, quote-unquote, recovery day, where they'd be running and they would be doing really easy effort. I think what we've learned now is that, actually, if it's just a recovery effort, we could be cycling, we could be swimming, we could be rowing, we could be using these big muscle groups in a different way and getting the same benefit, but taking a load off the bones, joints, ligaments, etc., that have certain thresholds for stress, and beyond that, they start to break down. So we sort of give them a break, but still get the benefit from exercise.
1: So a lot of times we're talking about exercise or training or working out. Those words kind of conjure images that oftentimes inspire images of fit people, or or people who are mostly fit, or someone who's just battling a weight problem or something like that, and sometimes I think it's the younger person that those words seem to relate to. But what's the benefit of activity for that population that's aging? Not even so much for the moment, but for the impact that that's going to have as they get older in terms of maintaining their independence.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. I really, it's a question that I get a lot in the clinic where people will ask me, hey, uh, you know, my mom or dad or grandfather, or somebody who's an older uh, person is having trouble and they ask, hey, you know, can this person benefit from physical therapy? Can this person benefit from exercise? I love that question because it, it's just such an easy segue into talking about the body is dynamic. It thrives with stress and exercise for anybody is what I tell people, and I tell the quote-unquote middle-aged people who say are 40 and above, that we're on this path of slowly losing flexibility, slowly losing range of motion, losing strength, and these are things that if we wanna maintain a lifestyle, we need to work at maintaining those individual pieces. So for the older person, I think that all of those principles apply. I try not to tell people what they can't do, but if they want to maintain an active lifestyle, I give them tips on how do they work towards that active lifestyle by having a cornerstone of exercise. So they need to do things that are going to set them up for maintaining strength. So in the older population, doing resisted exercise has been shown to be incredibly important as far as maintaining that strength, and that strength can help them to maintain an independent lifestyle. Now, for somebody who's living by themselves, it helps them to maintain the ability to lift their laundry basket or to reach up over their head and pull a set of plates off the shelf over their head. Or it might help them to maintain a stretching routine, might help them to maintain the ability to do something as simple as bend over and pick something up off the ground. So, you know, with the older population, you boil it down to fundamental activities of daily living. So, dressing themselves, bathing, feeding, all these things that we sort of take for granted. But if we're on a path of working at these things like flexibility, strength, motion, it's realistic to expect to maintain your independence with everyday stuff even more. I think beyond that, I think I'll use my parents as an example. They loves to exercise, my mom loves to bicycle, and my dad loves to walk, and so the more consistently they do these things, the more they can expect to maintain the ability to actually do that, and it seems funny, but something I talk to people about in the clinic is, they'll come in and they'll be frustrated because they can't do what they want to do, And I just tried to, on paper, explain that. Let's say, take the runner, for example. They say, well, I used to be able to run five miles, and now I can barely even run two. And I say, well, but you haven't done anything to maintain that ability. So they haven't put any work into working on strength training. They haven't done anything to work on flexibility or their range of motion. And at the end of the day, those things catch up to you at some point. So I tell that person, hey, whether you're 40 or you're 60, if you want to maintain an active lifestyle, you can't just sit back and expect it to happen by desire, okay, it takes work. So I tell those people, hey, you can do this but you have to work at it now. And unfortunately, we're not 20 anymore. We can't just tie on the shoes and go racing out the door. We actually have to prepare for that. We need to recover from that. We need to sort of do some legwork to maintain that. But if we do, I think it's easy to see many, many examples of people being active throughout their lifestyle as much as they want to be. So good question, and I think I always kind of look at it like we need to maintain and do work to maintain but if we do, we see the benefits and, and I think in the older population, I think we circle back to the idea of it needs to be fun, okay? It needs to be, if we're going to maintain an active lifestyle and we're going to expect that to help us to maintain our independence, then it needs to be fun. I think for the older population, it's incredibly important to also be social at the same time. So many of the studies these days on brain health for the older population is the idea of exercise is hugely important. The idea of combining some type of social activity, if you can wind those up into one thing, it's really, really great, not only for the person's emotional and psychological well-being, but for their brain health. And I think if we can establish these good habits early on, and teach people like we did years ago talking to people about the risks of smoking. And now we look at it, we flip it and we say, hey, if you really embrace and understand the many benefits of exercise and you can dedicate a lifetime to that, those people are gonna thrive. We're in the midst of a real huge swing of seeing how exercise and being active can maintain a lifestyle well beyond what we saw 20, 30 years ago.
1: So for that person that is motivated to make this year the year they get in better health, let's just quickly recap some of the stuff. You talked about starting off gradually. You talked about allowing enough time to really sort of see not just was I okay walking 20 minutes today, but do I still feel okay after a week of trying that. You talked about varying your routine, doing something you like to do, all those things. Beyond that, any parting advice to that person who last year they said that it was going to be the year that they were going to get in shape It didn't work out for them. This year they need to. They know they need to. Give some parting advice to that person.
2: Sure. I think, you know, one thing we didn't talk about is just the value of setting realistic goals. And we sort of touched on it in the context of motivating around an event or something like that. But I think if you set a variety of goals, and what I mean by that is short-term, long-term, I think that really helps a person stay dedicated. So if somebody has a goal that unrealistic and they're not going to achieve it, then I think it's too easy for the person to completely abandon the routine. Whereas if you have a goal that's sort of a one-week, two-week, month-long, two-month-long, so you establish some benchmarks that you're going to work toward, I think that's really, really valuable. And I think that's where I really advocate for somebody to sit down with a calendar, map out some of these goals on paper, and say running or walking is such an easy example. You could say, okay, if my goal is to be able to walk five miles in two months, then I can just work myself backwards from there and, and set a goal of being able to walk for a sustained mile or two in the next couple few weeks. Those kinds of things, they do a variety of different things. One, they give somebody a low-hanging fruit type goal for them to achieve and feel good about. Two, when it's on paper, it helps them to recognize that In the first couple weeks, when I expect them to feel crummy until they start feeling better, they can recognize on paper that things are moving forward. Even though they're not where they want to be, they're on the path towards getting there. And I think those kinds of emotional types of rewards, I think those kinds of things really help people to stay committed to doing it. You know, when somebody feels like, they can't achieve a goal or they're not moving forward, I think it's just an easy out to just scrap the whole thing and and effectively move on. So I think realistic part of the goal setting is to recognize that it's a process and it's gonna take time. I ask them, hey, what do you think is realistic as far as getting stronger? How many weeks or months does that really take? You know, I look at these things in sort of four to six week increments If they have a path like that, I think it's easier for them to stay on board and recognize that they're going to be hitting little hurdles along the way, working towards that bigger goal, and it sort of keeps them engaged. If you're checking in only monthly because you have a bigger goal, it's not as good as checking in weekly or even more often than that. You know, that's where the value of, hey, can you set these goals on paper, and can you tie it together with a local group where you're meeting with people and you're exercising with people, and it's social, it's fun, and you have somebody else to keep you on task. You know, The studies of people getting uh, engaged in exercise when there are other people holding them accountable, those people really, their frequency is much more consistent than the person that's trying to do this on their own. So if I can set them up with a social network, I think that's huge. One other parting comment, more back in the realm of recovery and sort of listening to the body is, we've talked so much about exercise, but recovery is about getting adequate sleep. Recovery is about getting adequate nutrition, which includes hydration. These pieces are essential. The body really recovers with sleep, and if somebody's not getting adequate sleep, I try to emphasize to them that I don't want them to exercise if they're not getting X number of hours of sleep. So being in the DC area, we see a lot of People that are working very hard and at a certain point I need to say to them, hey, you know, exercise is important, but if you're not sleeping six hours a night, focus on that. Focus on putting yourself in a position to be successful rather than digging yourself into a hole where you have a plus one, minus one plus one for exercising, minus one for not getting adequate recovery, and at the end of the day, those people don't succeed. So if we're really trying to advocate for putting the person into a position to be successful, there's the exercise piece, the recovery piece, I would argue, is just as important, and that's multifactorial with lead, hydration, nutrition. That's the fuel. I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about appropriate nutrition, but if you're not putting in the right elements, then it's hard to, hard to be as successful as if you are.
1: Well, we'll save the nutrition conversation for the next time. Robert Glanders, thanks for all the advice.
2: You're welcome. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of Move Forward Radio. A reminder, is always, that input from our guest is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider recommending it to a friend and rating our podcast on iTunes by searching Move Forward PT. You can find an archive of all our episodes, along with other health and fitness information, at moveforwardpt.com.
0: Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at MoveForwardPT.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit MoveForwardPT.com slash radio.